Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello to our listeners. Our discussion today is centered around type 3 diabetes, a more recently identified type of diabetes that manifests as insulin resistance within the brain. And this process has a strong potential to impact neurocognition and actually contributes to the etiology of Alzheimer's disease. Recently, through our last two podcasts, We've discussed type 2 diabetes in general with our guest, Karen Squires, and Julianne and I have also discussed some of the significant complications that can occur from having type 2 diabetes. So we thought that with the rapidly growing rate of diabetic cases combined with our aging population, it would be pertinent for us today to explore the role of phytomedicines in managing type 3 diabetes with regard to its impact on brain health and cognition. And to help us do this, we are very happy to warmly welcome back renowned New Zealand herbalist, Phil Rasmussen. So welcome, Phil. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Kristen. And uh, it's great to be here again. Well, we're very happy to have you and pick your brain. So to get us started, we wanted to talk to you about what is actually going on here with diabetes. So I think... A lot of practitioners would be fairly across the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes, but perhaps for some, the concept of brain insulin signaling and how this can go awry might actually be newer information, especially since the the term or the classification of type 3 diabetes was only coined in the 2000s. So it's a more recent conception. So we're wondering if you could briefly outline for our listeners the general pathophysiology of type 3 diabetes and how these processes relate to the brain. Sure, I'll I'll do my best. I'm not a physiologist, um, but um, yeah, it is really challenging to understand because there's a lot we don't understand as yet. But I think we all will acknowledge that both Alzheimer's, uh, dementia in general, and diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, are are real epidemics of our time. We've just nearly finished one pandemic, and with ageing populations and and people living older and all the rest of it, we're seeing a lot more dementia and Alzheimer's as we are with type 2 diabetes. So these are both absolutely major illnesses that medical herbalists and naturopaths are confronted with on an increasingly regular basis. So if there's a link between the two, which the whole concept of type 2 diabetes suggests, it's quite important that we try and understand it. So, but yeah, um, we know quite a lot about the biology of each of those two conditions um, and and whether in fact the etiology is uh, kind of coincidental, the fact that the, the risk factors, the lifestyle factors and risk factors that lead to Alzheimer's or lead to uh, diabetes type 2, whether it's just that they have similar risk factors and therefore it's a coincidence that we see the two often together or whether it is a physiological relationship or biochemical relationship due to, as you say, insulin's effects on the brain. Um, It's still somewhat contentious, particularly with mainstream medics, but increasingly um, it's starting to seem that both of these 
things are, are likely to be the case. There is sometimes it's a pure coincidence, but also in a subset of patients with dementia, particularly Alzheimer's, insulin resistance and the dysregulated insulin metabolism is etiological. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I mean, insulin we know now impacts significantly on cognition. There's more than 6,000 papers on PubMed. If you type in insulin and cognition, you'll see a huge amount of research coming up and uh, trying to summarize that and delve into, you know, what we know here and now is very challenging, as I say. But what we do know is that an altered insulin pathway does interact with amyloid beta protein uh, deposition um, and tau protein phosphorylation. And those are both leading factors that can uh, cause Alzheimer's disease. So we also know that cognitive decline is more often seen in diabetic patients than non-diabetic patients. We've known that since around the turn of the century. Um, so, you know, insulin resistance and, and diabetes are risk factors for Alzheimer's and poor blood sugar control does seem to increase the risk of developing Alzheimer's. It's sort of, I guess, that thing where not everybody with uh, type 2 diabetes will go on to develop Alzheimer's and perhaps not everybody with Alzheimer's has this as a driving factor, but there is a significant crossover and the drivers do tend to, to move that way. And the research around this connection between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease is just so interesting and clinically useful I feel because if we can slow or reverse the progression of diabetes then we may actually be able to reduce our risk of developing Alzheimer's or even improve our cognition once it's been impacted which is just phenomenal for such a debilitating um, condition. So Within the research, like you said, Phil, it's been shown that type 2 diabetes is a substantial risk factor for the formation of these beta amyloid plaque deposits in patients' brains with dementia. So could you maybe explain a little bit further that toxic cycle between chronically elevated circulating insulin levels and amyloid deposits within neurons and also maybe touch on why these uh, beta amyloid deposits do contribute to neurodegeneration? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, dementia is either due to Alzheimer's or it can be due to stroke, as we know. Um, but in the case of diabetes, patients are at a higher risk of both of those things. So, um, but yeah, Alzheimer's disease, the, the diagnostic criteria is the presence of these neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid beta deposits. Um, and Alzheimer's is characterized by a normal accumulation of those um, throughout the, the cortex as well as the limbic brain regions. So at present, as we know, there's no curative treatment, um, despite huge investment in so-called nootropics or smart drugs by the pharmaceutical industry for ever since I was a pharmacist and way prior to that, I'm sure. Um, and, and even some of these drugs getting to stage three clinical trials, we've yet to see significant wins there. We've yet to have uh, clinically effective drugs that can help reverse the process of dementia. So therein lies the challenge. But as you say, Kristen, um, the whole concept of using uh, hypoglycemic drugs or, or medicines, oral hypoglycemic drugs such as metformin, for instance, or you know herbs such as uh, you know, gymnema, uh, bitter melon, all the amazing herbs we have for diabetes 
the concept of using some of those for patients with pre-Alzheimer's or pre-dementia conditions or existing dementia is, is really quite exciting. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, as to how, how they work, um, what goes on, it's, it's uh, as I say, it's very complex, but um, as well as reducing the, the amyloid deposits, I think the whole area of neuroinflammation inflammation within the central nervous system, um, which is intrinsically mediated and affected by insulin within the brain, because insulin crosses the, the blood-brain barrier really easily, and in fact, it is involved in, in ensuring the patency of the blood-brain barrier. So if insulin metabolism within the central nervous system isn't functioning optimally, then uh, there's potentially a risk that things can cross the blood-brain barrier that shouldn't normally, and that may yet another etiological factor in the onset of Alzheimer's. So it's a really complex relationship, but what we do know is that insulin does um, affect genetic expression of, of insulin growth factor um, and a whole lot of other inflammatory markers within the central nervous system and, and the brains of, of animals and almost certainly humans as well. So hence this term, as you say, type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain, it is, it is really quite... Um, quite interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. Hey, Phil, thanks for joining us today. Nice to chat with you once yep. again. Yep. Hi, Julian. Nice Hi. to see you. That was such a good description and summary of the pathogenesis behind it, particularly that um, the neuroinflammation, which we'll dive into in a little bit. Uh, in a little bit, but I, I love herbal medicine for all chronic diseases, obviously. I think that's so potent. And diabetes is definitely one of those, particularly type 2. But I just want to go back to the, the build-up of amyloid plaque and, and what's actually happening there with that brain. And if we can utilise, in your opinion, and even if that's a research-based opinion, can we utilise herbal medicines to kind of either slow the process of building up of that amyloid or actually reduce the amyloid build-up itself? So, you know, that might involve, obviously, we know a lot of herbal medicines are, are anti-inflammatory and some of those... Um, uh, the chemistry behind our herbal medicine, sorry, can actually cross the blood-brain barrier and have direct activity within there too. But I'm interested to see if you actually think about utilising her herbal medicine specifically around the amyloid plaque buildup. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question, um, and I guess the the short answer is I don't necessarily think um, that that is a key strategy that I, I'm trying to pursue when I'm prescribing herbal medicines for people with cognitive decline as well as diabetes, particularly type two. Um, and yet, I do think that is a one of many mechanisms of action. Um, at least slowing down the deposition and, and the aggregation of the plaque because it's the aggregation of the, the beta amyloid that, that is the problem, not their presence in itself. Um, and I think the same with all the other amazing antioxidant and cardioprotective and neuroprotective actions that a lot of our herbs that we use for diabetes type 2 um, can have, um, it's highly logical they're going to do the same thing within the brain. And uh, particularly those smaller phytochemicals like withanolides and, and, and many, many others, rosmarinic acid withanolides from methania that gets into the brain, rosmarinic acid from rosemary, from sage, from lemon balm. All of these herbs have a tradition of use in helping to enhance cognition, helping to prevent age-related cognitive decline. And, um, and we're finding more and more from in vitro studies and animal studies that part of what they do alongside all these other things is they reduce the negative effects of beta amyloid um, or they increase its excretion. Um, and that's really exciting stuff, I think. 
It is really exciting. And I love that, you know, well, you know, these herbal medicines traditionally have been used in a certain way. And now with the mechanism of action, we're finding that out and we're getting more and more specific with animal studies and preclinical studies around why that might have, that herbal medicine might have been so beneficial traditionally and why we continue to reach for it. So it's kind of putting a picture around a herb a little bit more holistic, I suppose, to how and why we're reaching for things. So that is very interesting. I'm glad you mentioned Bethania and some of those other beautiful herbs that we tend to tend to reach for as well. But if, like you said, if we if we actually look at the pathogenesis in a broader sense, so if we actually look at what might be happening inside this so-called insulin resistant brain of the diabetic patients, particularly type two. So things like the extent of inflammation or the extent of oxidative stress that might be occurring. What type of treatment goals do you think are our, as, as herbalists or naturopaths, what are our major treatment goals here when that patient walks through the door that does have type two diabetes plus some cognitive decline? And therefore, what are those herbal medicine classes that we could be looking for to use for these patients? Yeah, I think um, that's a really good question because in, in treating very challenging conditions such as this, um, particularly chronic autoimmune type conditions or diabetes type 2 where patients generally on a plethora of drugs, they're generally quite unwell, they're often very, very unwell. Um, determining a treatment strategy from the outset is really, really pivotal in effective herbal medicine treatment. And all too often, unfortunately, I don't think that many medical herbalists and naturopaths probably consider that, that strategy enough at the beginning. It's, it's challenging. You feel overloaded. There's so much going on, you know, with metabolic syndrome. I mean, there's obesity, there's cardiovascular stuff, there's uh, dietary factors often, um, not to mention just, you know, the need uh, for, to address the insulin um, dysregulation. So strategies are really important, but I guess three or four different um, elements of that. One is obviously to control the, the insulin resistance to try and you know, treat the patient with hypoglycemic herbs or herbs that can help to modify insulin resistance within the brain. Um, and the many, I think, that can probably do that. Um, Secondly, a cardioprotective action, you know, as was said previously, you know, looking after the microcirculation, the endothelium, particularly, you know, organs that are, that are highly perfused, such as uh, the kidneys, um, you know, the eyes, the reproductive organs. It's really, really important that we try and maintain microcirculation as well as macrocirculation, just cardiovascular health in general. So, and with that in mind, herbs like ginkgo are just perfect, I think, as a preventative and also as an antioxidant. Um, really protecting all those organs against um, excessive oxidation, excessive inflammation. Ginkgo is a really good hepatoprotective. It's a really good renoprotective. It protects the testes in rats when they're, they're given chemotherapy. It probably has a similar and helpful effect in humans um, with diabetes, um, including diabetes type 2 or so-called type 3. Um, so the anti-inflammatory actions that pretty well all of our herbs instill, you know, um, are really, really helpful. That's another action, I guess, and, and, and the neuroprotective actions. So um, there, there are so many herbs that, that you know, tick, tick all of those boxes or at least three or four of them. And um, I think the key is to try and select a few that tick as many of them as possible and become really familiar with them get to know them well you know like you do your brother or your sister so that you know how to use that herb effectively in clinical practice it's such such a, an amazing explanation of how we like the importance of our therapeutic aims and then all the way through to matching that herbal medicine or that herbal prescription to 
the patient sitting in front of us because at the end of the day, we're treating a person and not just their condition because as we know, every condition will present differently in the different body that's housing it. So that's fantastic. And I think when you're talking about all those different uh, classes of herbs, that crossover of activity becomes so important so that we can whittle it down to those herbal medicines that do have as many of those boxes ticked, like you said, Phil. So with our neuroprotective phytomedicines and particularly our nootropics, so our herbal medicines that improve cognition and memory clinically, do you do you find, because you were mentioning earlier that um, the pharmaceutical companies do try to look at nootropics for these kind of conditions without a lot of success. But with our herbal medicines, because they have so many, uh, I guess, different and broad mechanisms of how they're working as nootropics, do you find that they they can play a significant role in patients with this kind of uh, presentation, so type 3 diabetes? And uh, do you have any favourite herbal nootropics for diabetic patients that may be displaying dementia-like symptoms? Um, yes, um, there, there are many, um, but it is challenging, as I said earlier, and as you said, Chris, Kristen, um, you know, stage three clinical trials and still no outcomes makes it challenging. And, and one of the challenges, despite huge amounts of compelling data from animal studies, is when you think about it, the number of patients you need and the duration of the trial required to have some statistical validity, even with a significant effect, um, you need large patient numbers and you need to follow them for a prolonged period of time. And, and an example of that would be, I think still to date, the biggest trial ever on, on Ginkgo that was funded by the American Institute of Health to see if it did protect against dementia, in fact. Um, and that was published a few years ago. But even though it involved, I think, two or three or 5,000 people, I forget, over a six-year period, um, it didn't achieve the, the outcome that was that was aimed, partly because they used too low a dose of ginkgo, but secondly, because they didn't start patients until they were 60 years of old. And, you know, amyloid deposition um, has been going on for 25 years before people start clinically getting symptomatic with, with dementia. So, you know, you've got to start early. So I think it's a lot easier to, to prevent than it is to treat, I guess is what I'm trying to say, Kristen. And, you know, given that the drugs don't really have much in the way of statistically significant outcomes and improving cognition, um, we shouldn't expect herbs can magically overturn um, a lot of symptoms in, in this cohort of patients. But we can lead to improvements, not only prophylaxis, which is which is 90% of what we can do, I feel, uh, but we, we can definitely uh, achieve improvements improvements. Um, some of my favourites, apart from ginkgo that I've talked about already, um, would be American ginseng, Panax Um, It helped memory in patients on antipsychotic drugs, uh, schizophrenic patients, because, you know, memory loss is, is an adverse event of that class of drugs. Um, another really good one, I think, is salvia multiriza, and the whole sage family has, of course, a history, not only because of rosmarinic acid, but also, you know, other... Um, 
uh, amazing compounds that it contains, that, that whole group, that whole class of salvia family herbs can help. Salvia multiarisa is acting on a circulatory level, it's anti-inflammatory, it can reduce amyloid beta deposition, um, and you know it's, it's a really good antioxidant and, and cardioprotective. And these are all things we want to achieve in a lot of our diabetic patients. Um, another one, I guess, uh, for cognition enhancement, um, particularly, I guess, would be um, lion's mane. And uh, some of our medicinal mushrooms are amazing for all sorts. As we know, we've, we've got Ganoderma, we've got Reishi, we've got lion's mane, we've got turkey tail. And lion's mane and I think Reishi in particular have a, have a huge traditional reputation um, to help with healthy aging healthy aging, including keeping your marbles as you get older, because not many of us want to get older and still have a body that's functional, but not much of a brain. And, you know, there's science behind that now. We know from a lot of animal studies and a few uh, short-term, but, but increasingly hopeful-looking human studies that some of these things can, these herbs and, and medicinal mushrooms can really affect um, cognition favorably in this group of patients. With our, with our patients that do have cognitive issues, often even making a small impact and a small benefit can just be a huge relief for that patient, that patient's family, um, particularly once they are a little bit more progressed, even if the impact that we make isn't as large as it might be in the preventative stage or the early stages of, of a particular condition like quality of life really is a huge, um, I guess, area and having even just small wins and small gains can be really, really heartening for patients and make a huge difference. So um, they're all brilliant herbs, Phil. I love that you spoke about Dan Shen, um, Salvia Milcheriza, because it does just, it has some really good uh, research around particularly some of the constituents in this area for cognition that I think sometimes we tend to pigeonhole it as just a cardiovascular herb and it can be a little bit more broad than that so that's fantastic and like you spoke about with the medicinal mushrooms one of the amazing things about our medicinal mushrooms is they do all tend to have anti-diabetic properties as well so that's a nice crossover in activity so it's interesting talking about the research in that we really are, you know, we're sort of beholden to whatever research has been conducted. And it's like you said, it's not necessarily as simple as, oh, we'll just do a trial on that and see what happens and, and get the result to back up our traditional use or whatever it is. But there has been some interesting research that has been done basically using uh, um, pharmaceuticals to address and improve insulin resistance and then those interventions then improving the cognitive capacity of certain patients. So do you think that when we're utilising our phytomedicines for their anti-diabetic and insulin sensitising activities that those kind of uh, impacts are a similar kind of outcome that we might see with those clinical trials or those different trials that have been done on pharmaceuticals and one question just secondly to that is I know that or we know that some of our herbal constituents do cross the blood-brain barrier do you think that the the herbs that we're using in this regard for insulin sensitizing that their constituents are crossing the blood-brain barrier to improve 
the insulin activity within the brain or is the brain more so mirroring what's going on systemically? Yeah, those are, those are good questions. And um, I think absolutely yes, the same way that um, you know, drugs such as metformin um, are now beginning to be used somewhat successfully, um, although there are a lot of challenges for helping uh, with cognitive decline in, in patients with diabetes type 3. Um, so can some of our herbs. Um, and, and a lot of them, we have so many herbs that can help with insulin resistance, as we know. Um, and that insulin resistance within the brain is definitely, definitely part of what's going on. Um, clinically, as to whether, proving it clinically is the challenge, I guess. And um, because, again, part of what we as medical herbalists and naturopaths do is we don't just dispense or prescribe and dispense the same product day in day out we like to combine different herbs into that individualized formula and therefore um, proving clinically that these things really help it can be very challenging but look there's just so many um, I mean bacopa um, is another good one valerian is, is a really good one everyone knows about bacopa um, it's, it's one of my favorites as well um, valerian is I think really under under misunderstood in this area um, because the same way that valerian can um, improve memory function in senescent mice, mice that are made to, to age prematurely and therefore get forgetful, um, valerian is a really good uh, herb for people who are aging, particularly with stress or um, you know people are worrying about stuff because that again can affect cognition. Um, but yeah, insulin resistance, they, they all affect insulin resistance. Um, you know, Donquai, Astragalus, that, that's a really good combination as well. And I think that, you know, the, the short answer to that question is yes, they're definitely crossing the blood-brain blood barrier, these actors. Um, you know, the same way that herbal medicine, you can do uh, receptor binding studies within the central nervous system of, of rat brains and mice brains. We know that our phytochemicals, a lot of them cross the blood-brain barrier. You know, a lot of these antioxidants, these anti-inflammatory compounds found in, you know, Lamiaceae and Danshen and sage and rosemary um, and even, you know, ginkolize. They're small enough to cross the blood-brain barrier. They're phenolic acids or they're, they're small compounds, alkaloids that do have the ability to do that. So, um, but you know, the whole thing around pharmacokinetics, um, even with drugs, is challenging enough. Let alone herbal medicine, where each plant has thousands of different phytochemicals. You know, what's the active, what goes over the blood-brain barrier or not, is is somewhat unknown. And one of the main mechanisms whereby these herbs can help, I think, is by just nudging the insulin metabolism because it's insulin metabolism itself that's one of its many roles in the central nervous system is to as i said ensure the patency of the blood brain barrier and keep other unwanted things out and and maybe that's a factor who knows it's all all very interesting it is so interesting and you just mentioned before to astragalus and don Quai in combination there's a lot of research around that combination is that is that correct i mean yeah absolutely not only from a traditional perspective and we have to pay careful attention to tradition because thousands of years of uh, tcm practitioners or western herbal practitioners or in, in aotearoa new zealand or maori people for hundreds of years prescribing and dispensing certain combinations of herbs um says something doesn't it so you know because you know this is before the so-called published research and that combination was in fact the case for diabetic patients for many many years 
even though it didn't call it diabetes, it effectively was. Same with Raymania, that's another really amazing Chinese herb for, for this condition. Um, and of course, we're seeing more and more research now um, in one day that's validating the, the efficacy of that combination, not only for um, the cardiovascular type um, risk factors in diabetes, but definitely neuroprotective against uh, diabetes, um, you know, neuropathies and you know particularly the nephropathy because that that kidney disease that kidney failure is really really debilitating it costs a huge amount of money on the healthcare system um puts a big you know pharmacoeconomic burden on everyone and so that's a, a really good combination i like that i also like chinese privet um that's a bit under recognized in this area too i think because Chinese privet or ligustrum lucidum, it's a very noxious weed here in New Zealand, uh, but there's a lot of research not only on it preventing osteoporosis in mice and rats and humans now, and of course osteoporosis is, is another long-term sequelae that diabetic patients can get, uh, but it does seem to, you know, do things with uh, alpha amylase, you know, um, so maybe there's another cognition enhancing herb for patients with diabetic, um, you know, cognitive decline. Um, just quickly, I don't. I, I could talk to you about this for ages, but have you used that Astragalus donquai combination clinically? Have you used it in diabetic patients clinically? Uh, yes, I have. And yep. is it? Sorry to jump in, but is it a, a happily use one you can use long term in those patients because it covers so many part aspects to diabetes pathogenesis, right? Absolutely, I think you know both of them are, are true tonics in the very meaning of the word, aren't they? As are a lot of our amazing herbs, but very, very safe to take long-term. Um, you know, this is a small a small uh, subset of people with Don Quite, you've got to be a little bit careful, uh, particularly with higher doses, but otherwise really, really good tonics all around for all sorts, I think, yep. Fantastic, thanks, Phil. And then just on the anti-diabetic or insulin-sensitizing phytomedicines, you've already mentioned gymnema and bitter melon earlier. Are they your favourites? Do you have any others that you reached for in that regard? Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely reach for gymnema. I think a lot of us, um, it's that uh, sugar um, neutralizing property. It, it get really, uh, you, you remember it the first time you do it. Yeah, you really. It, it, it stays with you forever. <laughs> so yeah, I do I do reach for gymnema quite a lot of the time. Gymnema has a lot of research for all sorts of relevant um, activities in this area. Uh, cinnamon, of course, is another one. Um, you know, who doesn't use cinnamon for diabetes? And, and you know, not only as part of the diet, uh, but it's a really good herb. And the good thing about it is you don't need a truckload in your mixture. So you can put some in and incorporate other things as well. Um, but yeah, Baikal Skullcap, I, I like Baikal. Um, and again, you know, years ago, we didn't think of it as being useful for diabetes. I know I didn't. But if you look at the research now, um, there it is, yet another use for Baikal Skullcap. For years, I've used it for autoimmune conditions and, and immune dysregulation, neuroinflammation, the whole immune system going awry is possibly just as etiological as beta amyloid, as we said earlier, beta amyloid deposition. Um, but you know anything that modulates the immune system, like Baikal does, and is um, cardioprotective, um, and is neuroprotective. It's one of my favourite, you know, nerve protective herbs alongside ginkgo. Um, it just stands to reason that increasingly we're realising it can be useful uh, for long-term use in, in diabetic patients as well. That is super interesting, and I must admit I haven't used it in diabetic patients, but Baikal, I mean, sorry. 
Um, but I, I, when you stop and think about the research behind Python and why I am using it, of course, that makes sense that you would actually use it in particularly in your type two, actually all type one diabetic patients in that regards. So we could talk about herbal medicines forever and we know how profound they are in complex chronic diseases such as uh, type two diabetes, but lifestyle changes possibly make an even greater impact on these patients. And I'm just wondering if you have a couple that you believe are the main pillars of their lifestyle, um, I guess, what would you call it, strategies that you might ask your patients to do in that regards? Absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head there, I think, Julian. Lifestyle factors are, are really big. They can make an absolutely huge impact on diabetes type 2. Um, and more than any single intervention, they're, they're probably the most important. And I think of those things, basically exercise and diet are really pivotal. Exercise in particular, um, we know now, um, is really, really useful. And in fact, I came across something recently about um, dementia, um, linking the, the speed that people walk at when they're younger with their risk factors for getting dementia when they're older. <laughs> and that interested me because I, I know my 95-year-old mum, she she walks very slowly now, but boy, she used to walk fast when she was young and, and she's yet to get dementia, thankfully. Um, so, you know, and, and if you talk to pre-diabetic patients or type 2 diabetic patients in the early stages when they're trying to avoid the need for metformin or sulfonuria, you know, or hypoglycemics, the first thing they should do is get out there and exercise. So that's really important. Um, but then diet, I mean, there's so much we can recommend dietary-wise that, you know, plants that are, that are herbal medicines, but also can specifically, I think, help prevent diabetes type 2 um, or the symptoms of it. Um, but simplistically, eating plenty of vegetables and not eating too much red meat. There's been a few reviews recently showing that um, by you know, incorporating less meat, red meat, and particularly processed meat in the diet and incorporating plenty of vegetables, it does reduce your risk factors for diabetes type 2. That, that's a 2017 European meta-analysis of a whole range of other um, meta-analyses and epidemiological studies. So that's quite convincing. Um, and, and legumes and nuts, they're all good as well. Um, you know, plenty of grains and fish, um, they're all pre preventative. And then, of course, you know, as, as Kristen said earlier, you know, medicinal mushrooms. It's not just the medicinal ones, but all mushrooms, I think, are really good. Um, I try and eat a lot, um, not only for immunity, but just for general health. Um, and then berries, you know, we're, we're talking uh, bilberry, blueberry, vicinium species. They're all things we can recommend our patients to eat, you know, frozen berries in their smoothie after the gym, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then, of course, you know, spices like ginger. Ginger is amazing for all sorts, including this particular situation, you know, diabetes type 3, as is turmeric and, and cloves and, and so, you know, get people to start using some of those foods in their diet. There's, there's a lot we can recommend. Um, and I guess last but not least is, is obesity and stress. Those also are two factors that indirectly predispose people to become quite unwell with type 2 diabetes and become at much higher risk of cognitive decline. Um, and so addressing the obesity and the mental unwellness that may be uh, contributory to that or the stress is also often really, really effective in herbal medicine. 
hundred percent. Um, and food is medicine. So if we can look at it that way, you know, even if we're looking at the gut microbiome and how that impacts impacts well how food impacts the microbiome and therefore how the microbiome impacts our cognitive function as well as insulin signaling and and how it's related to obesity so i think that you know the lifestyle factors are huge in that regards into what we're what we're actually consuming and putting in our body and how we're helping that whole person and that whole being and i think i'd add one more pillar to that which would just be getting quality sleep you know if we if we can actually if we can actually get that foundation with people then we know we're going to impact stress and you know insulin signaling and different things around there so wow that's a if we could just get our patients to do that on a regular basis phil maybe that oh, would. wouldn't life be so much easier <laughs> if i Absolutely. could do it on a regular basis wouldn't my life be that much easier <laughs> yeah yeah Mm. No, you said it all there. Sleep is really, really important for everything under the sun, isn't it? And we that's know that right. now. That's right. Phil, we're so grateful to have you back again. And your your knowledge is outstanding with regards to herbal medicine. We're so appreciative of your time. So I know how busy you are. Um, and hopefully we can get you back on the show again uh, to chat more herbal medicine in the future. But we're so grateful. Thank you for yep. joining us. Would love to. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Julian and Kristen. Thanks, Phil. Take care.